Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Simi Sarin. Simi Sarin is the director of Unitis Capital, an Indian impact focused investment bank, and she's the co-founder of Climic, Climate Venture Studio, supporting early stage Indian climate tech startups. Climic publishes an annual report on the state of climate finance in India. In this episode, we will be discussing the 2023 report Prior to her climate and impact career transition, Simi Sarin was vice president and head of research at Morgan Stanley in India. She's a chartered accountant and was a Sloan fellow at the London Business School. So welcome to the show, Simi. How's it going in Mumbai? All well, Janus. Thanks for having me here. Really glad to be at the podcast. Yeah, thank you for making it to the show. I really appreciated the effort that you and your colleague Shraban had put into this amazing and broad report. To begin off, I'll be interested to hear about your career transition. I mean, you studied accounting, you worked at an investment bank, and then you transitioned to social impact and climate finance. What what led you to this transition? Into the first 15 years of my career doing mainstream finance, working with investment bank, doing structured finance. And I guess I reached a point where... I wanted to kind of take a step back and see what else I wanted to do with my career. And I took a year off to go back to business school. Then when I came back to India, it was a choice between doing more of the same or looking at what the high potential opportunities are. And my first job back in India in 2013 happened to be at a newly formed lending company that was trying to do climate loans. I think it was partly luck that I landed up over there. But once I was there, I realized that not only is that work highly impactful, but I could clearly see that climate is potentially the biggest opportunity of our generation. It wasn't as obvious in 2013 as it is now, but it just felt to me that given how the you know climate change is happening, given how the emissions are going, there would come a point when this would just make strong business sense in addition to being highly impactful. So that, I think, was the trigger for me to make the switch to focus on mostly climate finance for the last 10 years. Awesome. And what led you to co-founding Climate and producing these annual reports on the state of climate finance in India? So Climate essentially started during COVID. And before 2020, I had done a few other things. I had helped start an impact lending company. I ran a fintech platform called Loans for SME, which was meant to help high-impact businesses raise capital. In a a different form, in Green Funder, we tried to see if we could do direct loans or financing of climate assets. And I think what we realized was that no single intervention is enough to solve for this big gap in climate finance and climate finance structures. Shravan and I actually got together in 2020 during COVID lockdown to say, maybe we should start by doing a landscape study and doing this one big report on where India is today, where the climate finance is at, what the main segments are and what the gaps look like. It was meant to be just that, but we figured once we wrote that report and while we were researching for that report that while there is a lot of climate research out there, most of it is very theoretical. Most of it is the government should do something about it. 
and there is very little actionable research on what the private sector investments can do or should do. So that was a starting point. And I think from there, Climate has now evolved to this whole ecosystem, which we are building on three axes, as I like to call it. So research is a key part of what we do because we want to have data-driven insights that fuel our work. But we then use that research to do two things. We have an advisory and mentoring practice where we work with early-stage climate tech businesses and we help them access capital. And because part of our thesis is that financing structures do not exist today to fully solve for climate we also pilot new structures. So the first structure we are piloting right now is essentially an asset financing program where we are trying to see if operating lease of assets where payments are linked to income from those climate positive assets can be a good structure. So essentially research, investment banking or advisory, and then direct pilots of new financing structures is how we are building this complete ecosystem. Uh, wow, super interesting. You mentioned the word actionable research. And in every report that I've read regarding the state of climate finance, you start off with uh, India's decarbonization targets. So could you touch on that briefly, please? Yeah, sure. So I think India has had a bit of a slow journey in figuring out what the country's goals would be. You would know that a lot of Western countries, for example, have net zero goals, which means that they want to have net zero carbon emissions by, say, 2030 or 2040. India finally promised a net zero goal at last year's COP, but they only want to go net zero by 2070, which basically means that India's emissions will continue to rise in absolute terms for at least another 10, 15 years before they start to fall. And I think that's the kind of the challenge that this country is grappling with, right? Because in some sense, India is still quite energy poor. A lot of our population does not emit a lot of carbon dioxide because they use so little energy. And as the country develops, as its GDP grows, they would need to use more energy. And what India is trying to do is balance that development goal with a need to become climate positive. And that's a very tough balance to negotiate. So I think at this point, India has decided to put growth ahead of climate in the sense that they are pushing net zero all the way out to 2070. And who knows what the world will look like in 2070. But the good thing is that with all the positive developments happening in transportation and electric mobility or renewables, we'll start to see peak emissions somewhere between 2035 and 2040. Awesome. And in the report, so after you talk about the decarbonization targets, you, you then move on to the investment and funding gap. And you, you base it off this 2030 target where we would need at least one trillion in private capital. So could you delve into what are the various, let's say, funding sources, both private, public, domestic, international, but also which are the, like, the prominent sectors where that capital will be directed to? Oh, sure. So I guess that was the one big number that we focused on, right? Because we felt that for funders to focus how big the market opportunity is, they need to see, you know, what's the big number they can hold on to when they go to their investors and say, we need to really invest in this country because it's a huge opportunity. And the way we went about figuring that number out was really looking at key sectors where investments are coming and then breaking them down on what the goals for 2030 look like and what the numbers would be. And the, and the big number we came up with last year was about a trillion dollars between now and 2030, which is about $120 billion a year. The actual investments that we estimate for 2022, the last full year, were about $22 billion, which is not bad. 
but it's still a long way off from 120. But let me first break down the 22 for you, right? Because India is very different in some sense from a lot of other countries we have seen. Because at this point, $22.5 billion, only $4.7 billion is equity. And a lot of it is going into renewables and electric mobility. But the rest of it is debt, which is something we haven't really seen in a lot of other countries that a lot of infrastructure, a lot of these projects are getting funded by project finance or debt capital. So I think that's a big difference in in India versus a lot of other markets, but potentially also something that is very relevant for climate because unlike, let's say, a technology company or pharma or health or ed tech, climate needs physical assets, which is why the sector in some sense is solving for the fact that, yes, you need burn money and you need innovation and risk money as equity, But once that is done and once you reach a stage as you have with solar, you just need to scale it and you just need to keep building more and more of those assets. And that has a very clear path coming from people like development finance institutions, like pension funds who can do this as a fixed return product. So more capital then becomes available. So yeah, so you ask, you know, what we think the breakup would be of this 120 billion a year that we think will come in. And I think a lot of it, you know, is up for grabs. But I think one thing that we've seen in the last two years is that both in India and internationally, investors who were previously looking at what I think of as mainstream sectors like SaaS or tech are becoming climate investors, which means that there is a lot more capital becoming available and a lot more investors essentially getting interested in climate. So we believe that this $120 billion gap will potentially be filled partly through Indian capital, which is essentially Indian VC funds, large banks, and lending companies in India. About half of that would come from India. And the other half would be a combination of blended finance or developmental finance from the likes of ADB, World Bank, IFC, all of these institutions who have very publicly stated their goals to invest more in climate in India. The big question mark in our minds is what we call private finance, which is just international PE money or international debt funds. Will they have enough impetus to invest in India? We don't know yet, but I think that gap exists and that gap can only be filled by private capital. Before we delve more into the different sources of capital, I would like to go into the different, let's say, sectors, as you put it, investment opportunities in climate tech. If we can start off with renewable energy, what what are your thoughts about the renewable energy landscape, especially with a lot of big players that are making these investments in India? So renewable energy is clearly the biggest investment sector within climate in India. That's because both solar and wind reached grid parity, which means that they are the same price as, say, coal-powered energy a few years ago. So because of that, there has been a lot of push into investing into renewable energy. Investors are also able to make market returns on this without any subsidies, without any concessional capital. So if you look at Last year, for example, out of the $4.7 billion of equity that got invested in Indian climate sector, $2.5 billion was renewables. And it used to be that most of it used to be solar in 2020 and 2021. But we're also seeing wind re-emerge, 
especially because people are starting to build solar and wind hybrid projects, which are more reliable, more stable. We are also seeing a little bit of biofuels-driven projects, although not a lot of that capacity. What we are not seeing yet, Jonas, probably because there isn't a need for that yet, because renewables are not that big of a capacity yet in India, is things like grid modernization or grid stabilization, because that, I think, is still a few years away. Almost all of renewable investments are happening in capacity increase. Awesome. The, the next sector that you touch on is electric vehicles. And you made a very interesting point where India will be globally competitive in terms of lithium-ion battery cell manufacturing. So I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on the EV and battery space. Sure. And EV is, is a curious one, right? Because it has over the last two years, 2021 and 2022, received as much as $3 billion in investment, which is quite sizable. The EV industry itself is not very large today. Most of the EV sales today are either two-wheelers or three-wheelers, which are like either cargo or passenger transport vehicles or tuk-tuks. What you've seen in Western countries like cars or buses are still a very, very small part of the EV sales in India. And even within two wheelers, I would say they're about five to ten percent of the market, or less than ten percent of the market share right now. So most of the investments are going towards, I think, hope towards this will be a much bigger market in future. And that's where I would say so far the capacities have been built towards OEMs, right? So a lot of investment has gone in the last three years has gone towards two wheeler companies or three wheeler companies or car companies. What we're starting to see now is people coming to realize that while you know, having the vehicle is great, but just like there exists a whole ecosystem for ICE vehicles, you need to build this whole ecosystem around EVs, which means that you need charging, you need battery swapping, you need battery management systems. And we are starting to see Indian battery companies talk about gigafactories, which is why we think, and you know, a lot of market analysts believe that battery prices will start to align with global prices. And, and over time, we will essentially, just like we have in solar, as battery prices keep dropping, not just in India, but globally, you will achieve price parity with ICE, ICE vehicles, which essentially means that one transformation that we will see in India is a lot of people going from ICE vehicles to electric vehicles. But I'll, I'll point out something that's true, not just for electric mobility journeys, but for climate in India in general. Most of the adoption so far has been by businesses, not by homes. And that's true for solar, where most of the solar today is B2B projects, where you're selling power either to the grid or you're selling power to a business. Most of the e-mobility in India is business vehicles. It's either cargo, transport, public buses. It's fleets, delivery fleets for Amazon, Zomato, food delivery, grocery delivery, all of those. And businesses have, I think, many diverse reasons to go climate positive. Right, It's because they could be part of a larger global enterprise which has net zero commitment. Or it's because it makes economic sense for them and they're able to take those decisions. Which is why not just in mobility, but in climate as general, we feel that most models have been B2B and will continue to do so for the next several years, essentially. So electric mobility, again, the growth will continue to be driven by fleets, both passenger fleets and delivery fleets, essentially. The B2B point that you make is super interesting. And I like how in your report, you mentioned that India makes up, let's say, one third of global strategic corporate investors or CVCs. And you also mentioned the net zero targets. 
So I'll, I'll be curious, especially uh, how are Indian companies looking to achieve these net zero targets, especially for, let's say, industry and heavy manufacturing sectors. Uh, that could be, uh, I think the three solutions that you mentioned is green hydrogen, biofuels and carbon capture in your report. Yeah, I would say, though, that it's very early, right? So if I just break, segment the climate investments, right, we talked about the two big ones, renewables and electric mobility. Beyond that, there's investment going into sustainable food systems or agri-tech. And there are investments of a few hundred million going into waste and circularity. But after that, everything else, which includes water, which includes decarbonization, which includes adaptation, is like a very, very small amount of investments, usually early stage investments. And that's because while Indian businesses indeed want to go net zero, Indian businesses also are suppliers, let's say, to global auto manufacturers or global IT companies or global healthcare companies who all have net zero targets. So they, by definition, have to also go net zero. But it's hard because if you take processes like steel or cement, which are like great chunk of Indian emissions today, green steel is technically possible, but unviable in terms of pricing, as is the case with green cement, because you have to fundamentally shift the way you manufacture these. And commercially viable processes or you know, price parity is a long way off. And I don't think that purchasing power exists in India to pay, say, double the price for steel because it's climate positive. But what we tried to isolate, Jonas, was really if green steel is not possible, are there elements of steel making or are there elements of cement making which will go more climate positive, right? And I think the two big ones in terms of how you work on processes is one feedstock, right? We see, I know hydrogen gets started as a transportation solution, but we believe that hydrogen is largely a decarbonization solution, replacing, let's say, steel feedstock with a green or blue hydrogen. And that's something where some investments are going in, early investments, but there's work happening. The other one really is about heat, right? Because when we think of energy, we often think of electricity or we think of like fuel for our cars, but a big chunk of industrial heat is boilers, which currently burn coal. And there are two ways you can fix that, electrification, but that won't help because even electricity is coal for India at this point of time. So the way it's getting fixed and a lot of industries are going that way is by thinking of alternative fuels for boilers. Biofuels, for example, agri-residue and using that as feedstock for boilers basically takes coal off your emissions. And that's one way to do that. So I think these are the two things. And then I think the third thing that we talk about is carbon capture. But again, we haven't seen at scale solutions implemented yet. I think this is more of if you can't fully convert the steel industry to green steel, what do we think the first three things would be? And the first three things we think would be essentially hydrogen, alternative fuels for boilers and carbon capture. One point, you mentioned previously the waste and circular economy. And your report, you had mentioned some promising policies that were set by the Indian government regarding extended producer responsibility and also management of leg legacy fuels that can create some interesting investment opportunities in the waste and circular economy. And they already have. In fact, waste and circularity was the fastest growing segment in India in 2022. 
And there are three things happening in waste, two of which are already creating investment. The third at an early stage, municipal solid waste, which is the waste that all cities generate. And because of some central government funding, because of how cities are now getting structured, there is a lot of push towards clearing existing landfills. And, and there are cities like Delhi, for example, that have landfills the size of a small city. And, and these landfills generate enough methane to cause concern. So now government is setting aside budgets to essentially give out contracts to clear these landfills and reclaim that land. So you essentially take the material off, claim what is reusable like clay or plastics or any other usable material. And the remaining you know, material that's left basically gets converted into what's called a refuse-derived fuel, which can again go into cement boilers, for example. So that's one technology that's kind of become mainstream. And right now there are hundreds of cities in India giving out contracts for landfill clearance. So that's one positive momentum we have seen. The other one is around two big segments of waste, plastics and electronic waste. And there have been strong policies that have come into place last year in terms of both plastic waste and both generators and large users of electronic waste, creating obligations for producers to also manage and recycle that waste. So both of these are seeing, you know, momentum. We are seeing startups coming up in this space, startups start to scale in this space. We're also seeing some startups in the circularity or alternative material space, essentially, alternatives to plastic or alternatives to other high polluting materials. I would say at this point, the focus is on recycle rather than create alternatives. If you look at our last year's report, we basically said the three exciting spaces are renewables, mobility and agri-tech. And we have definitely seen waste emerge as a fourth very exciting space this year. I look forward to seeing how, how waste and circularity evolves in the next coming years. Another important sector that you delved into your report is on agri-tech. And it's interesting that you showed that most of the investment is focused mainly on the supply chain rather on the farm level, even though most of the decarbonization will probably come from changing practices and inputs and so on. That's right, Jonas. And I think that's because when you think of investors investing in these companies, right? Agri-tech sounds cool, right? You build like a software and then suddenly you can connect farmers to markets and then less food goes to waste. And I think that's been the guiding principle for a lot of agriculture innovation in the last few years. It's helped, of course. We have had a lot of these startups come into both selling better inputs to farmers and also connecting farmers to markets in a more efficient fashion, which reduces food wastage, right? But Real change will happen when you start seeing more companies built for on-farm interventions, whether it's drip irrigation or precision agriculture or more productivity. Those are harder business models to work on, right? Because the economic model is not always very clear because farmers can't often afford to pay for these services if there's advisory services, which means that you have to look at alternative sources of revenue alternate sources of unit economics in these cases. We've seen people do some interesting work around seeing, you know, saying, can we tie our work around improving farm productivity to carbon credits, for example? And can we build a model around that? We have seen, say, solar dehydration companies build closed loop systems where they're saying we'll also then connect the farmers who are doing dehydration to markets so they can earn increased incomes and we can make a share of that. Nascent models, but this is something that we think will have to happen because unfortunately software can't solve for real climate change problems. <laughs> so so we are, we are starting to see some brave new entrepreneurs work on those difficult problems 
there's still many gaps, but also many new startups have emerged in the space to work on challenges around water usage, around agri-residue, all difficult problems that we have to solve for. Since you mentioned water usage, the last sector that we'll touch upon is climate adaptation solutions. And one of them is water. And then the next one is heat and cooling, especially focused on the need for 1 billion air conditioners by 2050. And the last is on air quality focused on clean cooking and agri-residue management. What I found very interesting was you had briefly spoken about water 1.0 and water 2.0. And this goes back to the, the B2B dialogue that we had earlier. And I'll be interested to hear about this and also about the other climate adaptation solutions. That's right. And in fact, I think that's true, not just of water, but also for air, Jonas, because I think about 10 years ago, when I first started working in climate finance, we helped fund a number of companies that were setting up water ATMs. Because at that time, the key problem was supposed to be access to clean drinking water in rural India. And those companies, while they were performing a very useful service, struggled to find viable business models and scale. What we've seen happen in water is that there's emerged a whole new generation of companies who have also gotten wise to the fact that in India, B2B is easier to find product market fit for because business customers will pay for a product and receive value for that product. And we are now seeing essentially companies emerge in areas like industrial wastewater treatment. There's a whole different segment of public finance that's building like drinking water infrastructure and sanitation infrastructure. But a lot of it is EPC companies who are working with the government. There's also this whole lot of private companies thinking about how do we treat wastewater better for industries? How do we use recycled water in manufacturing processes to make industrial processes emission-free? Same for air quality, right? There is a generation of companies that focus on, you know, India's air is getting worse. Can we sell air filters? Didn't really scale that well. But what has scaled is companies which are kind of solving for, let's say, uh, one big problem that India has every year is that at the end of the rice growing season, farmers were not able to find uses for the agri-residue would just burn it and that will create months of air pollution. And now companies are coming in saying, can we just buy this agri-residue off the farmers and create biochar? Or can we use it to make CNG plants? So that's having an incidental effect of creating better air quality. But I'll make a broader point on adaptation, Jonas, and I think that touches on heating and cooling as well, right? In a country like India, and I would say even globally, most of the climate dialogue gets centered around mitigation because mitigation is easy to measure. You put X gigawatts of solar, you save X tons of carbon dioxide, or you don't use X ice vehicles and this much emissions are saved. Adaptation is hard to measure and build business models around. And a lot of it is going to be public policy, right? Disaster management, climate refugees. There's nothing private investment can do about that, which is why we don't talk about it a lot. But we think that there are distinct parts of adaptation that you can't ignore. And heating and cooling is one of them, cooling in particular. There are parts of India that will see 50 degree temperatures this summer. You can't survive in 50 degree temperatures for more than a few minutes, which means that air conditioning, which traditionally used to be a luxury only for the rich, is soon going to become a necessity if you have to survive. And which is why air conditioning alone at, let's say, $300 an AC is a $300 billion gap between now and 2050. Now, part of it would be viable business models, like we are middle class, we did not have AC now, but we want to buy an AC now. But part of it would need creative thinking because 
there are people, millions of them in India, who just cannot afford an air conditioner. Or even if they can afford an air conditioner, they cannot afford the electricity to run that air conditioner. So I think it would need some kind of partnership between public policy and private investments to solve for this challenge. I don't quite know how that will happen yet, but I think that's true for adaptation in general. Whether it's disaster management, and that needs a partnership between government and insurance companies, whether it's cooling, and that needs some kind of solving. But the challenges are coming, they're getting bigger, which is why I think that's something that we likely would spend more time on as the next phase of our research. We don't have fully formed answers. I don't think anybody does at this point. But in my mind, adaptation will become a much bigger conversation in five years' time than it is today. I fully agree with you. And I'm, I'm very happy that you dedicated some of that report on climate adaptation. With this podcast, I've had a very hard time finding folks that focus on climate adaptation finance. I, I do have one episode that's coming up, but it's been quite difficult. So now, since we've spoken about, let's say, all the solutions or investment opportunities, let's move on to where that capital will come from. If we can start off, let's say, more prominently with the public equity markets. There are about, if I'm not mistaken, 43 uh, publicly listed Indian, let's say, climate tech companies. Could you give a quick thoughts on this? Yeah, that's right. About 40 odd publicly listed climate companies, including the likes of Adani and Reliance, which are becoming dominant players in solving for climate change. And they have a significant role to play because they are building for scale. But I would say that if you look at the number of deals that are happening in climate in equity markets, most of it is private markets. If we just look at the deal count over the last year, I would say about 70% of the equity investments, uh, not by dollar amount, but by number of transactions, is seed and series A investments. And that to me is good news because some of these companies will then grow on to become Reliances and Adanis five, seven years later and solve for scale. In that sense, I would say India, while we have a few public listed companies, including solar companies, carbon company as well, most of the climate financing activities happening in the private markets at this point of time. I know I touched upon, you know, what the sources of finance will look like earlier in our talk, but if you just break it down into equity, debt, and other forms of capital, equity is something that we think is going to grow quite healthily only because it seems to us from all the conversations we have that pretty much every equity investor is interested in climate investments today because they are seeing what I have now been saying for 10 years, that this is not just an impact opportunity, it's an economic opportunity, and it's only going to grow from here. As you've been studying this space for more than 10 years, how do you see the universe of climate equity investors, especially in the private markets? I see your report, you divided them from climate-focused funds to impact funds to angel syndicates and corporate VCs. Yeah, so I would say all of the segments of investors, whether it's VC funds, like mainstream VC funds who are now working on climate or folks raising specified climate funds, corporate VCs, but even angel networks, I would say all segments are expanding. And only in the last one year, we've seen more than 130 investors who have made their first climate investment. And that's a lot. So if we just count the number of investors who have made like at least one climate positive investment in the last 24 months, that's like 300 plus investors. I think there was a time five years ago when companies would say there are no climate investors. That's no longer the case. I think there are a lot of climate investors out there. It still doesn't solve for the entire problem because what we have found is that while mainstream VC funds are turning in attention to climate, they are not always adjusting their thesis to account for the fact that climate businesses are different from tech businesses. These are businesses which are asset heavy, which are B2B with long sales cycles, long gestation periods. And 
I think a lot of investors are struggling with that because they have to adjust their mindset to invest in something that looks very different from what they are used to. It's changing, but it's changing slowly. Slowly, but surely. In the beginning of, of our episode, you delved into your focus on non-dilutive financing. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on the local debt ecosystem, because I think you're one of the very few actors, especially well globally and in the Indian space that has put an emphasis on this. Yeah, because we believe that you can't solve for climate only with equity. If you look at solar, for example, once you get to a point where the cash flows from the asset are known, and most climate solutions need not just technology and software, but they also need actual assets to be put on the ground. And in case of solar or in case of, let's say, a delivery fleet for like electric mobility, once the economics are known, you can actually structure it as a fixed income product, which means that banks who have hundreds of thousands of millions of capital available can then lend for that asset. India also has developed a specialized ecosystem of lenders who only do climate lending. So there are the likes of Ireda, Tata Clean Tech, Power Finance Corporation, all at this point of time able to have balance sheets in a few billions of dollars that are able to lend to mature sectors. By mature sectors, I mean solar and wind, storage, to some extent, electric mobility. And I think that's the pathway a lot of nascent climate sectors will follow that early capital, innovation capital will come from equity, but as they start to mature, as business models and economics become clear, debt will step in. The good news is that debt is stepping in early and early. So for example, for electric vehicles, not only are these banks and specialized lenders, large lenders lending to electric vehicles, a lot of early stage lenders have emerged. There are platforms that are allowing individuals to own fractional ownership of electric vehicles or batteries or charging stations. And that's never happened before. We've never seen debt come in this early. It's largely getting catalyzed by the fact that electric mobility is also a very well-capitalized sector. But since this works for electric mobility, we are now seeing if this can work for agri, for example. Can we use the same model and, say, crowdsource debt or put specialized lenders in place to you know, fund farm equipment? or productive renewable energy solutions. And all of that has started to happen as well, which is why we believe that as we grow from 22 billion today to 120 billion in the next few years, debt will have a prominent part to pay in that. And it's not all Indian debt, Jonas, by the way. A large chunk of this debt is international debt. We know there was a slowdown, and we mentioned that in the report, that green bonds had a very active year in 2021 and had a slowdown in 2022. But we believe that this is one market which will grow. And there are distinct components of international debt that have already made very visible commitments for investments in climate in India. Okay, since now you've covered both the equity and the debt landscape, I'll be curious about some solutions that you're working on or that you've proposed in your research. Some of the terms that you've used is innovation demonstration facility for proof of concepts, climate asset financing facility, venture studios, and venture debt. So I'd be curious to hear about, about your, your thoughts on these solutions. Sure, Jonas. In fact, let me pick two that I think given where we are today in climate finance, could be the most impactful, right? One, which we are already piloting, is an asset finance program. And that is something that I mentioned in my previous answer, which is that climate solutions need assets, and often customers can't afford those assets upfront. They may be able to pay for those assets over the life of the you know, use, but not upfront, and which is where if you can 
find a way to fund it. So take the example of, let's say, a farm equipment that's going to generate additional income for the farmer, but it costs $500. Now, the farmer may not have $500 today, but if you say, pay me $10 a month for this, you should, they should be able to afford that because they're making an additional $20 a month using that equipment. And we believe that there is room for and need for asset financing that is linked to either the income generated from the asset or the savings from the assets to come in early on for more innovative assets. They exist today for solar, for electric mobility, but they need to exist for, say, landfill clearing equipment, right? Because if smaller companies are taking contracts to clear off landfills, they need to buy equipment to do that, or farm productive equipment, or irrigation, solar pumps. So dedicated programs who solve for these challenges is something that we think will bridge the gap between companies getting early traction and then not scaling because their customers can't afford their product or don't want to pay upfront for their product. It's a new technology. So if you're a business, you don't want to invest in a new technology, you may as well pay for it based on its usage. So that's, I, I think, can be a game changer if you can scale that. I think the other one is really about moving innovation from labs to market because very often you have in india you know these extremely good engineering colleges or research labs that come up with innovative products but these are scientists or technical folks who don't really know how to build a business and there i think part of it is just getting funding whether it's blended finance whether it's some form of structured you know capital to essentially fund the move from that lab solution to the first pilot to go to market. But I think it needs a broader solution. And, and we call it venture studio, but I think what it really means is, can you find a way to either pair this technical person who owns this innovation with business teams or help them skill themselves so they can run an actual business? And that cannot be a three-month you know, incubator. It's just not long enough. What you need is a two-year program, you know, enough time for that lab solution to become a real business. So I, I think basically moving solutions from lab to market, and then once you have early traction, finding the right financing structures for customers to buy the product via an asset financing or a customer financing facility. These two additions to the climate financing ecosystem can really drive change in our view. Throughout this episode, throughout reading your research, I really appreciate the long-term view you take on climate finance in India. We're now moving on to the near end of this episode, and we'd like to end these episodes with advice to listeners. So my first question is, what would be your advice to prospective investors, whether they are international or local, who want to invest in Indian climate tech? I noticed that you had a 2022 investor survey on climate finance in India, but you also mentioned that in your 2023 report, a section on the three reasons why climate equity investments will increase in the long run. That's right, Jonas. We believe that there is a lot of capital out there that's searching for climate investors, right? It's funny because when we meet startups, they say we can't find investors. And when we meet investors, they say we want to do climate investments, but where's the pipeline? And I think I can kind of make a point to the investors here. It would be that you have to look at climate investments differently. You have to build for longer horizons, you cannot invest in an innovative climate solution today and expect to exit in three to five years. You also cannot expect them to grow the way tech business grows. These are businesses which are going to need investments. They're going to need to build physical assets on the ground. They're going to essentially have 
long sales cycles because customers need to get used to something that's new, something that they've not seen before, but it's essential. And over time, if you're able to adjust your investment thesis and your time horizons, they can be very profitable businesses. So you have to look at climate with a different lens if you want to invest in the sector. Next question is for Indian climate tech entrepreneurs. You mentioned that there's a lot of promising talent coming from technical universities in India. And you have supported over 50 startups in raising dilutive capital. And you've also helped 100 plus startups with market access support. So I'll be curious what your advice to Indian climate tech entrepreneurs would be. Oh, well, gosh, where do I start? <laughs> no, but uh, seriously, I... I, I think there are so many bright entrepreneurs in India today working on so many interesting technologies. I don't know if this is advice, but I think this is more of an understanding of, you know, what we have felt talking to hundreds of them. This is hard, right? Building a business in something that's innovative, something that's not well known is not easy. But at the same time, this is potentially the biggest opportunity you will ever have. I don't see any sector today that affords a bigger opportunity for both growth and scale and profitability. So I think more than entrepreneurs are already there. I think if you are somebody young, just graduating from college, thinking of what to do with your life, I think you can't do any better than thinking of playing a role in solving for climate. Awesome. And before we end this episode, how can the listeners read your newsletter publications and read more about climate work and the amazing work that you guys are doing? So all of our work is on our website, which is climate.co. And that includes all of our previous research reports. And we add more of these as we publish them, as well as a newsletter that we try to publish semi-regularly, but once a fortnight or so. Everything is on the website. We are happy to interact with our readers. So if you have any questions, all of our contacts are there. Very happy to hear from you. Great. I'll make sure to include all the links in the show notes. Thank you very much, Simi, for this amazing report and for this interview opportunity. Have a great day in Mumbai. Thanks so much, Jonas. Really appreciate you spending the time with us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.